So I'm going to start with a question, and you don't have to shout out. It's rhetorical. You can answer it for yourself. But who do you suppose was the third greatest king of Israel? Certainly, the first would be David, man after God's own heart. No dispute there. I think it's reasonable to assume that number two would be Solomon. Solomon started off so well, knew that the fear of the Lord was the beginning of wisdom. He didn't end well, but regardless, he brought Israel to its greatest point of world influence. But who would number three be? Well, I want to suggest that it's Hezekiah. Now, Hezekiah was a king noted for one quality that escaped most of the other kings of Israel. What was that? He was obedient. He was a king who actually cared about what God wanted. And in 1 Kings 18, it's said of Hezekiah that he trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that there was none like him among the kings of Judah. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. What a great resume for a king, for a leader, someone who would obey God. But you know, just because Hezekiah obeyed God, it doesn't mean that he escaped trouble. And we are going to spend uh, this period finding out about the greatest crisis that Hezekiah ever faced. And indeed, it was terrifying. And as we describe what's going on, I want all of you, who I, my guess is that you want to be obedient. I mean, you're here on Sunday morning, three out of four people in Connecticut, they don't bother to go to any kind of church. But here you are. There must be something inside you that says, I, I want to obey God. So please, if you would identify with Hezekiah in this clear desire that he had to be obedient. Now, I'm going to tell a story this morning, okay? It won't be so much like a sermon, but it'll be a story with what I hope will be a significant point for your life. And I'm going to make three caveats. First of all, many of you may know this, but as I speak about Hezekiah and Judah, that's actually the, the southern kingdom of Israel. A number of years before, northern and southern Israel had split. And in fact, we're going to refer to northern Israel a few times, but Hezekiah led Judah, the southern kingdom. Secondly, confrontation that I'm going to describe actually occurred between representatives of, Sene of uh, Assyria and Sennacherib, the king, and representatives of Hezekiah. The two men, the leaders, the kings, they didn't actually directly interact. But I'm going to tell the story as if they did because it just flows a lot better and it doesn't change the meaning at all. And thirdly, I'm going to tell a story, and there'll be a lot of details, and not every one of them can be found in the Isaiah passage. I'm pulling in from records in Kings and other books of the Old Testament to fill in the blanks and bring out the, the richness of this story. It's one of my favorites, I admit it, 
And uh, if you don't know what we're talking about here, so much the better, because you're going to hear a real humdinger of a story. So, what's going on? Well, Sennacherib is very upset with Judah. So upset that he has gone on a rampage of destruction in this country. What got him so mad? Well, the fact is, Assyria expected Judah to pay an annual tribute. Now, I'm sure a lot of you have guys have seen those mobster movies, you know, when the businesses have to pay the mobster guys for protection. It was sort of the same thing. Judah was expected to pay Assyria so they wouldn't wipe them out. But this was getting to be a more and more difficult task. In fact, the scriptures tell us that Hezekiah actually had to take some of the gold that was inlaid in the doors to the temple in order to put together the cash that was necessary to make this payment. So finally, Hezekiah says, I'm just not doing this anymore. We can't bring this burden on our people. And in response, Sennacherib attacks 46 fortified cities of Judah. And he wipes them out, 46 cities. Now he's at a city called Lachish. And Lachish was just 30 miles from Jerusalem. So while they're laying siege to Lachish, Sennacherib sends over a spare 185,000 soldiers to make camp within striking distance of Jerusalem. He's got, uh, he's got a strategy here. Now, Sennacherib was a pagan and he was a godless individual, but he wasn't stupid. And so he decides, maybe I can just talk the folks in Jerusalem, and Hezekiah in particular, into just surrendering. You know, that would save me a heap of trouble. I wouldn't have to go through the expense of building all these siege ramps and paying my soldiers. And If I could just get them to surrender, everything would be fine. So they arranged for a meeting. Again, it was actually representatives of the two governments, but we'll talk about it like it was Hezekiah and Sennacherib. And Sennacherib makes one whale of a speech. And the first thing he says is that Hezekiah and Judah, if you think you're going to get some help from Egypt, it's not going to happen. Now, throughout this speech, Sennacherib makes a number of statements which are true in part. And when we're being intimidated and when we're facing difficult situations, lots of times we'll accuse ourselves with things that are only half true, but they still make us feel horrible. And I'm going to describe a horrible situation that I faced with my wife at the, the end of this story. But the point for the moment is that it, Egypt and, Hezek, and, and Judah had considered an alliance, but Isaiah, the prophet, from God to Judah at this time, Isaiah said to Hezekiah, don't do it. And so Hezekiah, being that obedient guy like I described, he didn't do it. But regardless, Sennacherib makes the assumption that Egypt and Hezekiah have some sort of, a, of an agreement, and he reminds Hezekiah 
that his armies have just destroyed Egypt. There's no way that Egypt is going to help Judah against Sennacherib. They had just been defeated by his armies. Now, Sennacherib starts to wax theological. This is rather interesting because Sennacherib, he's a pagan. He lives in Nineveh, you know, that city. And it was a godless city. Now, they had had this revival with Jonah about 80 years before, but it appears that, there were, that it was of no uh, impact long term. And so Sennacherib was used to worshiping pagan gods in his pagan city of Nineveh. But nevertheless, he assumes he knows something about the true God of Israel. And he says to Hezekiah, you know, your own faith in your own God is confused. Now, again, there was a bit of truth to this in that Hezekiah had overseen the dismantling of worship centers that were outside Jerusalem. Previous kings in Judah, for political reasons, had established these decentralized centers of worship and promoted, actually, the worship of Baal, instead of having the Israelites go to Jerusalem and worship at the temple like they should have. There were three holidays a year when the Israelites were expected to go to the temple, and they had started to follow the direction of unrighteous leadership, which said, now, just just go to these local temples. You'll be fine, and you can worship Baal. Don't worry about the God that we used to worship. Well, Hezekiah was an obedient man, and he cleaned all of that up. And he eliminated those centers of worship, forcing his folks, his people, to go to Jerusalem and worship at the Temple of Solomon as they should have. But Sennacherib, he interprets this incorrectly as confusion. Then he goes on and takes a tact of mockery. He says to Hezekiah, look, if you really want to fight me, if you want to be that dumb, I'll give you 2,000 horses as part of your military might. Now, fighting on horseback, that, that was the latest in military technology of that day. The fact of the matter was, many of Sennacherib's soldiers knew how to fight from horses, but none of the Israelites did. They fought from the ground, as they had done for ages. Furthermore, by offering 2,000 horses to Hezekiah, what was that going to be against 185,000 soldiers that were ready to take on the soldiers of Judah? It was a drop in the bucket. And Sennacherib knew that, but again, he just wanted to mock Hezekiah and Judah with his might and with his strength. Then, Sennacherib plays his second God card. He says, look, the fact of the matter is, Hezekiah, God is on my side, not yours. Now, how ridiculous is that as a statement? Well, it's not completely ridiculous because the fact of the matter was that God had used Assyria as an instrument of judgment on the northern kingdoms. Remember I said there were two different kingdoms? The northern kingdom 
was overcome by the Assyrians. God, in his sovereign will, decided to take this pagan nation and use it for judgment against the northern tribes. What happened to the northern tribes? They disappeared. Because the strategy of Assyria in overcoming its enemies was to take all of the people that they had conquered, in this case, about 200,000 northern tribe Israelites, and relocate them into Assyria itself. When he got these folks miles from their homeland and immersed them in a culture with different norms and different language and different values, the hold on them from the past would slip away. And then once they began to intermarry with Assyrians, the tribe just disappeared. And that's what happened to the 10 northern tribes. We, we can't say where they went because they were successfully assimilated by Assyria. So Sennacherib makes the point that God is on his side in this overcoming of the northern kingdom, but we know the reason which Sennacherib probably was completely oblivious to, but regardless, he uses it as a point to further intimidate and to try to force the Hezekiah and his folks into submission. Now, Sennacherib takes a, takes a pause from his speech, and he notices that they're standing on a, on a road, a fairly commonly traveled road, because it was right on the way to the public laundry for Jerusalem. And he looks up at the walls of Jerusalem, which was, aren't too far away, and he sees all these Jewish men sort of hanging over and kind of looking out there to, to see what, what's going on. Because they, they realize that this is big. Whatever's going on between Sennacherib and Hezekiah is going to impact them in a significant way. And so he sees them up there. And up until this point, Sennacherib and Hezekiah, they had been speaking in Aramaic. So Aramaic was a diplomatic language at that time. So educated people knew it and used it. But the common folk, like all those Hebrew men up on the wall, they couldn't understand a word of it. So Sennacherib thinks, well, if I can't get to Hezekiah, I can certainly get to those common folk up on the wall. So I imagine he probably cupped his hands like this so that the folks could hear him, and he speaks in Hebrew. He speaks in Hebrew and intimidates them and attempts to convince them that he, as the leader of the Assyrian army, is going to take them out. Now, I'll be honest, I don't know much Hebrew. So I don't know exactly what Sennacherib would have said. But I will tell you, I'm from New York. So I know a little bit about Brooklynese. And just momentarily, if you're from Boston, don't even ask me what team I root for in baseball, OK? Let's just keep that off. But imagine Sennacherib speaking to these Jewish onlookers in an attempt to intimidate them into surrender. Maybe he said something like this. Hey, you guys up there on the wall. Get the wax out of your ears. 
and listen to what I got to say. You guys could save yourselves big trouble if you just wise up and do what he tells you. Ain't no way Hezekiah and your God is going to save you from what my guys are about to bring you when they lay siege to Jerusalem. Just give up, and I'll send you to a land filled with the proverbial milk and honey. I'll take good care of all of you. But most of all, don't for a minute listen to what Hezekiah says about God helping you. Just forget about it. I'm not sure if he says it exactly that way. But if nothing else, I woke you up in the middle of the sermon. (laughs) So, Hezekiah knows that he's in a big-time corner. And Sennacherib tries to put one more nail in the coffin when he reminds Hezekiah that the gods that other nations that he has conquered did them no good. He points out two specific nations. He uses king's names that we don't recognize. But he says, these two nations, I wiped them out. They had gods. What good did those gods do them? Nothing. So you think that your god is going to make a difference? That was his final point. So what is Hezekiah going to do? He had already determined beforehand he was not going to offer a verbal rebuttal. I mean, frankly, in the face of that verbal onslaught from Sennacherib, who would want to try to come up with something that would put him down? What Hezekiah does instead, and this is where it starts to get to a place we can sort of apply what's going on in the, in the story, he puts on sackcloth. Now, sackcloth doesn't mean anything to us. It's, it's not part of our culture. But when a Jew put on sack, sackcloth, it meant two things. One, I repent. I, 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 whatever I did to bring this on us, I was wrong. God, please forgive me. And secondly, when a Jew put on sackcloth, he was grieving. He was anticipating the worst. He didn't know what was going to happen, but he was putting on that sackcloth to show his humility and his utter dependence on God. Quite a reaction. Then Hezekiah seeks the counsel of Isaiah. I mentioned earlier, Isaiah was the prophet, the one representing God to the people of the southern kingdom. And so he goes to Isaiah, and Isaiah gives him two brief but important pieces of counsel. The first thing he says is, don't be afraid. Well, I'm sure that was a hard one to apply, but regardless, it was coming from the spiritual leader of Israel. Yeah, no matter how much Sennacherib scared you, don't be afraid. And secondly, he said, Sennacherib is going to die by the sword, I promise you. And again, it was hard to imagine that 
Sennacherib, having given that mighty speech and having 185,000 people backing him up, that he was in any risk of dying. But that's what Isaiah told him. The next thing that Hezekiah does is to pray. He prays. And that was the scripture reading that we uh, had earlier. And I want you to notice uh, a couple of things about this prayer. First of all, it was short. You know, sometimes when we're stuck and we're in big trouble, we think, well, we better pray for a really long time to convince God of, you know, how much we care about what we're praying for. And I'm not saying you shouldn't pray for a long time, but I am saying that this prayer is very brief. It takes maybe 45 seconds. But Hezekiah approaches this prayer in a way that might not occur to most of us if we were stuck with a big issue as I am, and maybe some of you are. The first thing that Hezekiah does in praying this courageous prayer is to praise God. It's amazing to me. He's got the discipline to praise God, even though he's got this huge request to lay before him. Then Hezekiah does humbly express his need. He knows that only God will save him. He's the only one with the power to do it. He has no idea of how, but he knows God can. And he tells him that. And then finally, as he closes his prayer, he says to the Lord, Lord, if you will answer my prayer, all the other nations are going to know that only you are the true God. Glory will come to your name as you save Judah. That is a great model for prayer. What happens in response to that prayer? What happens is the 185,000 Assyrian soldiers are wiped out overnight. The Bible doesn't explain exactly how that happens. Uh, the conjecture is that there were rats in the camp and they somehow spread a plague that brought instant death. 185,000 Assyrians wiped out. Sennacherib himself had already left the camp. Of course, he didn't anticipate what was going to happen, but the fact of the matter was there was another military crisis more important than what was going on with Jerusalem, and he took off to attend to that situation. However, we do know that 20 years later, Sennacherib was assassinated by his two sons while he was worshiping in a temple back in Nineveh. And so Isaiah's prophecy was fulfilled with regard to Sennacherib. But what is of most important to us is the fact that when Hezekiah approached God with praise, with humble submission of his request, and with recognition of the honor that would come to God if he would answer, when he did all of that, God answered. Now, again, I broke the prayer down so you could just see what its elements were, but I'm not saying that this is the magic formula. You do one, two, three, it's all done. 
Now, none of us who have been Christians for any period of time would fall for that. And that's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is this story should encourage any of us that are praying for something that seems impossible. Have anything like that in your life? I wouldn't be surprised. Because of the fact of the matter is, as I said earlier, you can pursue obedience to the Lord with everything you've got, but trouble still comes into your life. But God is still sovereign. He still oversees our situation in a way that we can't possibly appreciate. And as a result, we need to continue to trust in him. A little personal story. Christine and I were married in the late 60s. By the early 70s, we wanted to have a family. We soon discovered that we were infertile. We were not going to produce children. It was just medically not going to happen. So we were Christians then, just like we are now. What did we do? We began to pray. We began to pray about adoption. Now, this was just about the time that Roe v. Wade was passed, way back in the day. And... Babies available for adoption were getting fewer and fewer and fewer. And as we went to adoption agencies and said, hey, here we are, well-balanced, happily married, committed couple, we'd love to adopt, they basically laughed us out of the office. It was really, really discouraging. Then we were told, well, go, go get an international adoption. Well, those are really pricey, and it, it just wasn't an option for us. So what did we do? We kept praying, we kept praying, we kept praying. And within two years, we adopted an infant boy born in the United States. We adopted an infant girl born in the United States. So here we were, several years into our pursuit of parenting, and God produced a family that looked like we planned it. I mean, who wouldn't want a little boy and a little girl in their family? It was wonderful. But then we had a call from uh, a lady who did a lot of foster care. And uh, she knew me uh, because I ran a Christian camp where her foster boys attended. And she said, you know, I have this seven-month-old boy. And I know you've adopted a couple of kids already. But would you be interested in adopting this seven-month-old? His mom is 14 years old. She's a drug addict. And she's willing to have you adopt him. So we went through what was called a private adoption at that time. And the mom signed the baby over to us. We called him Ben. And then we were checked out by the state. And they said, fine. And so we had Ben in our home. And all that was left was a six-month waiting period during which the mom, the natural mom, could change her mind. That's the way it was set up. So we finally got to the day of the court hearing. And we were all pumped up and excited because Ben was finally going to become our child officially. And the first thing that the judge said was, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Criscow, your lawyer has totally botched the application for this adoption. And we thought, what? What do you mean? Well, you can imagine how our hearts just sank. Then he looked at the lawyer and he said, hey, you, come to my chambers. So the judge 
and our lawyer disappear into his office. And for 20 minutes, we don't know what's going on. So we're praying and praying and praying and praying. That's all we could do. And 20 minutes later, the lawyer bursts out of the office of the judge, goes past this quickly, but he says, you got the baby. You got the baby! That was one of the most incredible answers to prayer in our 55-year history as a married couple. It still stands as one of the great moments where God came through for us. But Ben grew up. And by high school, Ben was a drug addict, just like his mom. Ben got in a lot of trouble. Ben continued on in his life. Now, 30 years later, he's in his mid-40s. We're still praying for Ben. Are we praying with just as much fervency and the support of other believers as we did when his adoption was in question? Of course. In fact, we've been praying a lot longer than 20 minutes. And yet God, in his sovereignty, has not answered our prayers. As believers, as obedient followers of Jesus, we need to learn to live in the tension that God has the power to answer the prayers that we make but that God also has the sovereignty to know that while he loves us and cares for us and pays attention to us, he may not answer our prayers the way we think he should. We just have to live in that tension. And that's part of living the obedient Christian life. So my hope in telling this story is that if you have a burden that God is not answering, that you would take hope, that you would take hope in his sovereignty. And I'm going to ask the elders to stand up and their spouses just for a minute here. Just stand up so people can see who you are. There's a couple of them, and I'm here too. I'm sort of a temporary elder. I'm glad to talk with you, but you guys can sit down now. But my idea in showing who these people are is to encourage you after the service, we're going to have communion, but after the service, if you'd like to pray with someone and get the encouragement in a confidential conversation, these men and women would be glad to pray with you. I'd be glad to pray with you if you, you know, prefer to pray with somebody who's not part of the church. But the point is, we need to continue in prayer. Yeah, Hezekiah's prayer took 45 seconds. Our prayers... Sometimes it takes 45 years. That's how old our Ben is. We just need to continue to be obedient, to pray to the Lord, to be, give praise when he answers as we desire, and to have faith if he functions in his sovereignty to not answer that prayer the way that we want. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the story of Hezekiah. It's exciting. It's, it's marvelous to see the incredible way in which you worked in his life. And thank you for the times in our lives when we've seen you answer. Lord, thank you for what you did in allowing us to adopt Benjamin and a dozen other circumstances where we saw you answer in wonderful ways in a variety of situations that we faced 
as obedient followers of you. And Lord, I pray that uh, this story would be more than just a story for each person here, but that it would be an encouragement for them to continue in prayer, believing that you have the power to answer, but trusting you for your sovereign response. In Jesus' name, amen.